Hi, this is Roy Shoman, and welcome again to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the fulfillment, the full realization of the promise, all of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Well, almost every time of the year is a very special time of the year for a Catholic on the Catholic calendar, and uh, even more so for a Jewish Catholic, because there's also the Jewish calendar. But this today's show will have more about to do with the Catholic calendar, because earlier this week we had the Feast of Our Lady of Lourdes. Of course, the apparition of the Blessed Virgin Mary in Lourdes, France, in 1858, uh, which probably when I was growing up Jewish was... <laughs> I'd say almost about the only, certainly the only Catholic miracle, so to speak, that I had ever heard of was the medical healings at Lourdes. And I remember asking my mother, my French Jewish mother, you know, I guess I had heard about it in school or something that sick people would go to Lourdes and go to the um, waters and get healed. And I asked her about it. And she said, oh, well, these are people who imagine that they're healed. They have psychosomatic problems, and they just think they're better afterwards. And it was my mother who told me this, so I believed her. And, of course, it was only decades later that I found out that nothing could be further from the truth. And there are thousands and thousands of cases, including very, very dramatic ones. People who were uh, one man who was missing three inches of bone in one leg, and the bone instantly reappeared and he was walked perfectly and so forth hundreds and hundreds and hundreds thousands of medical healings at lourdes which uh, by the way to be approved of them as a medical healing at lourdes there has to be full physical documentation of the condition before the healing um, x-rays doctor's reports blood tests and so forth um, and similarly a full medical workup after the healing uh, the healing has to be instantaneous, it has to be permanent, there has to be no natural explanation, and so forth and so on. So, of course, my mother knows the truth now because um, she's on the other side, but she certainly didn't know the truth then because it was very far from the truth. And uh, anyway, so I don't have too much of a Jewish connection to tell about Lourdes. Uh, of course, I have the little one that I just told. And if there's time at the end of the show, I will talk about another one, which actually has to do with the Song of Bernadette. I think many of you have heard of the book or in the mu and the um, movie. But before I get go down that rabbit trail, um, rabbit hole, I see we have a caller on the line. Uh, so, uh, what's your name and where are you calling from? Okay, hi. Uh, I'm interested in knowing if you happen to know of any current priests uh, who are converts from uh, the Jewish religion. Uh, yeah, tons. I know of tons. One of the problems I had uh, early in my conversion is every other Jewish man who I met who entered the Catholic Church was a priest already. Um, <laughs> No, I mean, it was funny. It was like, I, is there any uh, I could get, uh, oh, you say tons, 
that might not be appropriate then to ask for a list of them, but is there a way of, uh, of getting the names of a few uh, parish priests? Um, well, uh, boy, you put me a little bit on a spot um, because uh, that's not... That's not the issue. The issue is it's really for them to let people know whether they are Jewish converts or not. I have a friend. Could you clear it with a few? I'm not. No. I, I have a friend, for instance, in Montreal who's a Jewish convert, who's a priest, but um, he doesn't want his congregation, or at least for the first five or six years, he didn't want his congregation to know his parish that he was a Jewish convert because he had enough trouble as it was, if you know what I mean, getting accepted. Well, there are some, there are some probably who are um, well known as such. Um, I'm drawing a blank on them right now. There's the Emmanuel community, which is a worldwide um, uh, mixed community of religious and lay people who have a kind of shared religious life together. And the priest who started that is a Jewish convert, known as a Jewish convert. Um, I would say you could probably Google, seriously, you could probably Google, um, you know, Jewish convert Catholic priest, and I'm sure you would find some. But, okay, well, thanks for calling. Good luck. Um, and uh, thank you. Thanks. Well, it must be my lucky day. I see we have another caller on the line. What's your name and where are you calling from? Um, so my name is Mary, and I'm calling from Santa Rosa Beach, Florida. Okay, great. Did you have a question or a comment? I do. I have a question. So what are your thoughts about, um, or is there any dogma in the Catholic Church about cremation? Um, and what huh. are your thoughts about that? Okay, cremation. Well, it's forbidden in Judaism. <laughs> That's not your question. Um Okay, that is one of those things where there was a standard Catholic teaching um, until the 20th century, which pretty much forbade, you know, prohibited cremation uh, because it wasn't sufficiently respectful of the dogma of the resurrection of the body. Um, however, um, the Catholic Church has moved away from that practice, I would say, pastoral practice of discouraging cremation. Um, my understanding is it's still discouraged in the sense that it's not a first choice, it shouldn't be considered a first choice, but it's very willingly tolerated when circumstances dictate. Um, and that is, I, I think that's actually a pretty uh, accurate characterization of the church teaching. So it was never a dogma forbidding cremation, but it was certainly considered really, 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 you shouldn't do it. And, but that's pretty much gone away in the last, whatever, 80 years or so. So that now um, there isn't, there isn't, isn't, isn't who, excuse me, there isn't even that much of a stigma against it. Um, now we know it's not an impediment to the resurrection of the body because where would Joan of Arc be, right? We just had the... Uh, Right, and where would uh, Maximilian Kolbe be, and so forth? So obviously, God can somehow arrange the resurrection of the body. Uh, even in the case of Joan of Arc, you know, they they not only I think they actually burned her three times. I mean, they burned her, and then they burned the 
remaining ashes and then they burned the remaining ashes and then they threw it in the river to make sure it would be really hard for God to resurrect the body. But I'm sure he's, uh, he's managed somehow. So anyway, I don't mean to get flip about it. It's certainly, it's still discouraged. It's still not considered quite, um, you know, quite the thing to do. But uh, anyway, well, that's, that's the answer to that question as far as I know. And I'll get back, I'll get back to, thank you for calling. And thank you for listening. Um, uh, I'll get back to, um, to Our Lady of Lourdes. Um, but you know, um, because, uh, because I started out before the, the calls mentioning this, I might start in a different place, which is, um, as I said, that the medical miracles at Lourdes, uh, to be approved of as a medical miracle at Lourdes, and quite a few have been, um, I want to read an interview with a doctor who is um, a member of the International Medical Committee for the Study and Verification of Lourdes Cures. Now, this committee of doctors to verify Lourdes Cures are not all Catholic, they're not all Christian, and they're not all even believers. And they do that on purpose so that no one could accuse the medical miracles of Lourdes as being, you know, Catholic propaganda or something like that. So here's this short interview. I'm reading from a a book I actually helped contribute to, Marian Shrines of France, uh, that's published by the Franciscans of the Immaculate. Uh, So the interviewer, could you give us an idea of how cures are authenticated? Dr. Colvin, the process is elaborate and exhaustive. A sick person who is cured at Lourdes is invited to the medical bureau for a thorough examination, both physical and psychological. This begins with a study of their medical history. Witnesses are questioned. A report is made. If the medical bureau is satisfied that an extraordinary cure may have taken place, the patient is invited to return one year later with all his documents, test reports, x-rays, and so on, for another thorough examination. This is to see if the cure is permanent. At this stage, the case has only a file. There is as yet no decision. So you can see how cautious they are. They don't do anything right away. They force a wait of one year to make sure things are permanent, and even then, they only open the the case. They open the file. During that year, a sort of probation period, A doctor who lives near the patient is appointed by the medical bureau to make a local investigation. The patient's general practitioner is consulted. Medical records are cross-checked. The clinic or hospital where the diagnosis was made is visited. Family and friends are interviewed. And above all, the patient is monitored. After this process, the patient returns to the medical bureau for the re-examination. Visiting doctors, often non-Catholics and even atheists, are asked to examine the case objectively as scientists, whatever their religious beliefs, thus safeguarding the Bureau from accusations of bias. If the Bureau people are still satisfied that an extraordinary cure has really happened, they pass the case on to us, the International Committee. We now have the job of reviewing all the evidence. We get about two cases a week from the Medical Bureau. Most of these we sift out 
leaving about five to seven a year that we seriously consider. Then comes the final stage when the cure is declared to have no medical explanation. And this is all we doctors are asked to do. We are to stick to hard medical facts. All this takes time. Some cases take years to get to this point. Most never get this far. Again, notice how careful they're being. The doctors don't declare it's a miracle because that would be speculation. They have to stick to hard facts. And the hard fact is there's no medical explanation. They have to stop there. There's no medical explanation for what the evidence shows. Continuing, if the International Committee finds the cure to be extraordinary, it sends the case to the patient's local bishop. He appoints a team of canon lawyers to examine all the facts from the point of view of their particular specialties. They are interested in the moral life of the cured person. Um, a team of five doctors advises the canonists on medical matters. Finally, the bishop has the responsibility to say whether or not the cure is a miracle. I should add that the medical end of this is all done by doctors and paid for by doctors. The church does not fund any of it. What criteria do you follow during hearings? We have to, what we have to decide is whether the case can or cannot be explained according to laws of biology. It boils down to deciding if there really was an illness to begin with, if the illness was actually cured, if the cure is permanent, if there has ever been any treatment which could explain the cure. We must make a distinction between a treatment that is aimed at eliminating disease and one that is only intended to ease the symptoms. We follow a questionnaire giving a yes or no to 18 questions, then a yes or no to whether it is scientifically explainable. Um, do you consult individuals or organizations outside the committee? Oh, yes, and not all Catholic resources either. Um, it has been claimed that a number of cures has been dropping recently, that the number of cures has been dropping recently. Would you comment on that? Um, as medical procedures become more sophisticated, verification becomes more elaborate and rigorous. This may mean that we are missing a lot of miracles, but a miracle doesn't have to be labeled one by us for it to be true. It's really between God and the patient. Um, I will add something here, which is one of the reasons that there have been thousands and thousands of dramatic, instant, permanent, medical, miraculous cures at Lourdes. And there are only, I don't know, between one and two hundred that have been declared by the church to be officially miracles. And there are, are two reasons for this. Essentially, this medical examination is quite expensive, and somebody has to pay for it. And then when the medical examination is finished, the canonical examination by the bishop is very expensive, and somebody has to pay for it. Uh, in that case, it's the diocese or the bishop. So usually... When the Medical Bureau at Lourdes has approved, essentially, or has, has declared that a healing has no medical explanation, it then gets referred to the bishop to be declared a miracle, and usually the bishop declines because he doesn't have the spare $100,000 that he wants to spend, or whatever it'll cost, to go through the process of doing the canonical investigation. Um, so that explains why, in fact, 
that despite the thousands of um, heavily documented miraculous cures, the number of officially pronounced miracles is relatively small. Um, now I will go to an account of um, the apparition itself. Um, the 19th century revolt against God was led by some of the most brilliant men the world had ever known. God had given them their wonderful minds so that they might better serve him, but instead they turned against him. He permitted them to make astounding discoveries in the field of science and to make great progress in a material way, but instead of thanking him, they took all the credit to themselves. The sovereign majesty of God has tumbled, said Cauchy, the great mathematician who died in 1857. Only the material exists. Reason alone can and has the right to explain everything. The supernatural order is impossible. Religion and faith are superfluous. They are burdens which encumber the human spirit. Science alone reigns victorious. It alone emancipates man, releases him from his chains, permits him to reach his full height and to search all horizons. The ordinary people of the world read statements such as this and decided these great men knew what they were talking about. Um, that's the end of the reading for the moment. I want to interject for a moment. Um, I have a science background. I have a Bachelor of Science degree from MIT, and I, I worked as a scientist for a number of years. And I think one has to make a distinction between science and the scientific method, which has to do with examining the evidence and forming theories and and testing theories and accepting or rejecting theories and so forth, with what I think should be called scientism, which is turning science into a religion, literally, turning science into a faith, so that even when science fails rationally, one holds on to it because it is one's faith. And that is, in fact, what is being described here. And that is, in fact, what happened in the second half of the 19th century as a science uh, advanced by leaps and bounds, explaining more and more things. The temptation was to turn science into the religion and have faith in science and simply have blind faith in science. And that blind faith in science then replaced an openness to the evidence that proves the truths of religion. Now, there's plenty of evidence that proves the truths of religion. Um, I would argue that life itself proves the truth of religion, and the in fact that a careful examination of evolution will show that evolution itself is an insufficient explanation to explain life. Uh, and certainly... Science has no explanation for the medical healings at Lourdes. Science has no explanation for the Shroud of Turin. Science has no explanation, or I should say scientism, a blind you know, faith in science to be able to explain everything, has no explanation for any number of physically verifiable miracles. Therefore, scientism, so to speak, is in itself unscientific. Because the essence of science is that you look at the evidence, you form a theory that can explain the evidence. If it's successful in explaining the evidence, you can hold on to that theory. If it's unable to explain the evidence, you'd better throw away that theory and come up with another theory that can explain the evidence. And God has been very generous 
in giving us in our day an incredible number of physically verifiable miracles which rationalism, materialism, has zero explanation for, including the Eucharistic miracles, including the Shroud of Turin, including the medical miracles of Lourdes, and so forth and so on. So in fact, a truly scientific attitude would have to start looking into whether in fact the Catholic faith might be the true explanation for these miracles. That's all That's all a little bit of a digression, but a, a terribly important one um, because basically we've been intimidated by the culture to think that it's superstition to believe in religion and a rigid adherence to the facts leads one to be materialist and skeptical about religion. And the opposite is true. G.K. Chesterton said, rightly or wrongly, those who believe in miracles believe in them on the basis of the evidence. And rightly or wrongly, those who do not believe in miracles refuse to believe in them on the basis of faith. Their faith, essentially, that miracles can't exist. So they simply discount the evidence. They deny the evidence, no matter how dramatic it is. And many of the medical miracles at Lourdes are very dramatic. So in any case, skipping ahead, the Blessed Virgin Mary saw what was happening with his advance of science and this dismissal of the claims of religion. And she decided to launch a counterattack. And she chose not a scientist, not an intellectual, but little Bernadette Subaru, a poor, sickly, uneducated peasant girl who at the age of 14 did not even know her catechism to confound the intellectuals of the day. On February 11, 1858, Bernadette had gone with her sister and a friend to gather wood. The other two girls had run on, leaving her to follow as best she could. Suddenly, as she stooped over to take off her shoes before crossing a little mill stream, there was a noise like a violent wind. Startled, Bernadette looked up and saw a golden cloud emerge from a grotto on the other side of the stream. This was followed by a beautiful lady. She looked at me immediately, Bernadette later said, smiled at me, and motioned me to advance, as though she had been my mother. All fear left me. I seemed to know no longer where I was. I rubbed my eyes, I shut them, I opened them but the lady was still there, continuing to smile at me and making me understand that I was not mistaken. Without thinking of what I was doing, I took my rosary in my hands and went to my knees. The lady made a sign of approval with her head and took into her hands her own rosary, which hung on her right arm. As Bernadette recited the rosary, the lady allowed her own beads to glide through her fingers. She joined only in the recital of the Gloria at the end of each mystery. When the recitation of the rosary was finished, the lady returned to the interior of the rock, and the cloud went with her. This happened near the town of Lourdes in the southwestern corner of France on February 11, 1858. It was the first of 19 appearances which Our Lady was to make to little Bernadette Subaru. As news of the apparitions spread through the countryside, larger and ever larger crowds were attracted to the Garado. Only Bernadette saw the lady. The others saw nothing but the big black hole in the rocks. But the people saw Bernadette in her ecstasy and knew when Our Lady was there. 
Most of the people believed Bernadette's story. A minority, including the government officials and other members of the intelligentsia, scoffed at it. This minority was to cause trouble. During the third apparition on Thursday, February 18th, Mary said to Bernadette, Will you do me the kindness of coming here every day for two weeks? Bernadette said she would come. Then the lady said, I do not promise to make you happy in this world, but in the next. Bernadette was to have many occasions to recall these words before she died. At the sixth visit, the lady looked sad and said, Pray for sinners. Very quickly, however, she smiled again. During the eighth apparition, the crowd saw the girl move on her knees to the rose bush upon which the lady had been standing. She prostrated herself at each step. Then, turning to the people, she cried, Penitence, penitence! Our Lady revealed a spring of water during the ninth apparition. This water was to become world famous for the miraculous cures worked through it. On Friday, February 26th, the Lady said, Bend low and kiss the ground for the sake of sinners. Bernadette did, and so did most of the spectators. On March 2nd, the Lady requested that a chapel be built at the place of her appearance, she also said that she wished processions to come there. On March 25th, the Feast of the Annunciation, Bernadette had an uncontrollable desire to ask her visitor her name. Others had been freely calling her the Blessed Virgin, but to Bernadette she had been the Lady. The girl made her request and the Lady merely smiled. Bernadette repeated the question and then she asked it a third time. At my third request, Bernadette said, her face became very serious and she seemed to bow down in an attitude of humility. Then she joined her hands and raised them to her breast. She looked up to heaven. Then slowly opening her hands and leaning toward me, she said in a voice vibrating with emotion, I am the Immaculate Conception. These momentous words meant nothing to the ignorant peasant girl. She repeated them to her pastor. This priest had been very skeptical about the apparitions, but now his skepticism began to fade. She could not have made up those words. Thus Our Lady put heaven's approval on Pope, Ni Pope Pius IX's solemn definition of the Immaculate Conception just a little more than three years earlier. The whole story of the fall of man, the incarnation, and the redemption are implicit in her words, I am the Immaculate Conception. So we have a new summary of the Christian revelation in our own day. It came at a time when the world had almost forgotten the original revelation. A commission appointed by the Bishop of Tarbes, the diocese in which Lourdes was located, investigated Bernadette's story thoroughly. Every witness was questioned again and again. Bernadette told her story over and over and answered the same questions so many times that she would surely have lost her patience if she had been less than a saint. On January 18, 1862, the bishop gave his approval to the devotion which had sprung up at Lourdes. Bernadette later entered the convent. As Our Lady had warned her, she found little happiness in this world. She suffered from the curiosity of visitors who wished to see her, from the strictness of her superior, who was of the mistaken opinion that Bernadette needed humiliation to be humble, and from the tuberculosis that racked her body. Hundreds of pilgrims were being cured at Lourdes, but for Bernadette there was no cure. 
She died on the afternoon of April 16, 1879, of tuberculosis of the knee. On her lips was a final prayer to Her Lady of the Grotto. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for me, a poor sinner. She was canonized on December 8, 1933. And I will add that she was um, dug up. That's not a nice expression, but she was exhumed. Um, I believe it was in the early 1920s when she was beatified. And when she was exhumed, removed from the coffin, which had been underground for about 50 years, she was fresh as a daisy. She was completely incorrupt. And the doctor who uh, cut into her to actually take relics said what amazed him the most was when he cut into her liver, it was still fresh and spongy, even though it usually becomes dried out and hard within hours of somebody's death. Uh, she, she looked absolutely perfect. Then they reburied her. Before they reburied her, they washed her with an antiseptic, which turned out to be a mistake, because then when they exhumed her once again in 1933, for, when, for the canonization to take more relics, her skin had darkened from an effect, I believe it was carbolic acid that they had washed her body with, uh, thinking that it would um, you know, disinfect her. But in fact, it had started a process which discolored the skin. You can see her now. She's in a glass casket under the altar at the uh, convent where she lived out her life and died in Nevers, France, which is just about two hours, I believe, southwest of Paris. Anyway, we've reached the halfway point in our show, and I usually take a short musical break around halfway through the show, and um, I will do so now. And this is a live call-in show. The number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY. So we'll take a short break. And when we come back, I'll look at the call board and see if there are any uh, callers who have called in. If so, I'll take the calls. And um, after that, or if there are no callers, I will continue talking about um, the Blessed Virgin Mary's um, apparition at Lourdes, France, February 11th, 1858. So with that, um, let's go to our short musical break. You're listening to Roy Showman on Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. We'll be back in a few moments. Well, welcome back. That uh, music, I apologize a bit for the sound quality, but as you could probably tell, that was an actual recording of the Lourdes hymn from uh, Evening Procession at Lourdes. So I thought that, that um, you know, the, the context of it, the meaningfulness of it, would be fair compensation for the audio quality. However, I see that we have a... I believe we have a caller on the line. Are you there? Uh, yes, thank you for taking my call, Roy. This is Edwin from the east end of Long Island, New York. Hello, hello. Um, great, thanks for calling. Did you uh, have a comment or a question? Yes, I actually have two questions. Uh, the two questions, the first question has always been in the back of mind regarding the dearly departed, the dearly departed that they're asleep in Christ. How does that fit the theological thought? Like, for example, we know the saints are aware of what's happening here on earth and we can pray to them. And then there's 
decide that we can that we the duly departed in purgatory the the holy souls in purgatory can pray for us here but they can no longer pray to save themselves how does the thought fit regarding that they're asleep in christ and the second question and i'll take the answer uh over the radio is regarding the writings of a servant of god Louisa picaretta i just recently came across her in the last maybe three or four weeks and I'm amazed at the depth of it. Have you ever come across it, uh, Roy? Yes, I have. Oh, yes. Okay. So, um, in the future, is it something that maybe you could also bring forward to one of your shows on Radio Maria? Uh, first, the uh, first question. Some ways, it's a little easier. I think the issue is is um, what it means that uh, the dearly departed are asleep in Christ. And I don't know the origin of the phrase. I don't know the language that that phrase first appeared in. But I think it's got to do with what is meant by asleep. And I think there is no question, and that in fact it's dogma, that the dearly departed are as awake, perhaps, as a matter of fact, frankly, probably more awake than we are. They are either in, excuse me, they're either in heaven or they're in purgatory or they are in perdition. And in any of those states, they are very conscious. And um, if they're in purgatory, they're certainly conscious of our prayers for them, and they can pray for us. And uh, I know that, for instance, uh, my wife and I are great proponents of uh, arranging for masses to be said for the souls in purgatory. Tell the truth, as an exchange, usually, that we make a deal with the souls in purgatory, that if if they um, intercede with a per particular problem successfully, then we will have a mass said for them in purgatory. Usually I give them a deadline just to make sure that, that um, I know it's to be attributed to their intercession. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. I apologize for for the, the baseness of that. But it is certainly true that the souls in purgatory are aware of our prayers for them and of our masses said for them and that they intercede for us. And of course, the souls in heaven, there'd be no point to praying to any saint um, if they were literally asleep. Um, I wouldn't have... <laughs> there are probably at least 500 things I would have never found if I hadn't prayed to St. Anthony and he uh, came through and found them for me, usually by the time I finished the prayer. So, again, I don't wish to be flipped, but I think it's just a matter of, of um, what, you know, the use of that word asleep. And I think that probably what people are referring to is that the body is at rest. The body is immobile. Um, you know, if you look at a, a body of somebody who's deceased, it in some sense looks like they're asleep. But I don't think there's any question about their consciousness. The uh, Luisa Pergreta is a uh, more complicated situation. And um, I know that she's a servant of God. A friend of mine is actually very active in promoting her cause. Um, and I believe he wrote the first, um, the first uh, doctorate for a uh, doctorate in sacred theology around Luisa Pergreta and, and her theology. Um, however, you know, I'm Johnny come lately to the Catholic Church. I'm the new kid on the block. I'm a Jewish convert, and I try to err on the side of conservatism. 
So um, there are enough. I, I basically wait for somebody to be, it sounds, you know, usually I wait for somebody to be beatified or canonized before. I don't want to be in the position of giving them my imprimatur, so to speak, of endorsing them before the church has endorsed them and the and, and their writings, for that matter. And Louisa Pergoretta, the servant of God, that has to do with her personal virtue, but it's not a pronouncement of the church on the source of her revelations. So I, I just, you know, I want to err on the side of caution. And I'll, you know, I, that's just my personality. So that's the answer to that question. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for your call and uh, for your excellent uh, questions. But um, I, I think St. Paul said it. He said, basically, well, he said, if Christ hasn't resurrected, then we're the biggest fools that ever lived. And um, I think if if the saints are not, if the saints are really asleep and if they're not awake in uh, heaven paying attention to us, then we're pretty big fools. I don't think that's the case. I, I think that negates all of um, basically the whole Catholic system understanding of the afterlife. Um, so that's uh, good. Thank you for those questions. And now um, I see there are no other calls. So let me go back to Our Lady of Lourdes. And um, I think what I will go, remember, before the break, I had just mentioned that when Bernadette, St. Bernadette, was inspired to ask her who she was, her reply was, she said to me in a voice vibrating with emotion, I am the Immaculate Conception. So we have a saint, uh, one of my favorite saints, who spent his life meditating on what that means when she said, I am the Immaculate Conception. And in fact, I'm talking about St. Maximilian Kolbe, and before St. Maximilian Kolbe left Europe to start a monastery, in, it ended up in Japan, he stopped at Lourdes for, I think, about a week to pray at Lourdes. Lourdes was really central to his spirituality because that phrase of Mary's, I am the Immaculate Conception, was at the heart of his Marian uh, spirituality. So I can't do much better than to read some extracts from St. Maximilian Kolbe about what it means when she said, I am the Immaculate Conception. So let me just um, choose. Okay, who is Mary Immaculate? To this abrupt question, it is not possible to give a satisfactory answer because this mystery transcends our human intelligence. One would have to set down all the various graces bestowed throughout the history of nations to tell of the many apparitions, but especially one would have to recount the story of grace in each individual soul if one wished to give even a partial answer to the question, Who is the Immaculata? She is the mother of God, and her name is the Immaculata. When God showed himself to Moses, he said of himself, I am the one who is. In other words, I am existence itself. When St. Bernadette asked the Blessed Virgin Mary her name, Mary replied, I am the Immaculate Conception. 
such as Mary defined by her own words. But what does the expression Immaculate Conception mean? The word conception tells us she is not eternal, that she had a beginning. Immaculate tells us that from the first instant of her existence, there never was in her the least conflict with God's will. The Immaculata is the most perfect of all creatures. She is the most sublime. She is the most godlike. She was immaculate because she was to become the mother of God. She became the mother of God because she was immaculate. Mother of God. The human mind cannot grasp what God is. Neither can we comprehend the dignity of the mother of God. It is easier to understand a title like servant of God, daughter of God, is more difficult to grasp. But mother of God transcends our minds completely. God calls creatures into being when he creates them. Then, in their movement of return to God, these creatures draw near to him and come to resemble their creator more and more. God comes to his most perfect creature, the Immaculata, and the fruit of their love is Jesus Christ, the mediator between the creator and all creatures. When we ask, who is the Immaculata?, Our language is not able to furnish an adequate response. We can't even form a meaningful idea of it. True knowledge of the Immaculata can only be acquired in prayer. The purer a soul is, the greater efforts it makes to avoid sin, and if it does happen to sin, it tries its best to rise from sin and make up for its fault by love. The more humble it is, and the greater spirit of penance it shows, the more and better will it get to know the Immaculata. And those uh, that passage from St. Maximin Kolbe comes from a conference he gave July 26, 1939. Now I'm going to read a passage from St. Maximin Kolbe, which is the final thing he wrote before he was taken away to the concentration camp and perished there to Auschwitz. It is the final dictation of Father Maximilian for a book he intended to write on the Immaculate Conception, February 17, 1941, the very day of his arrest by the Gestapo. Interestingly, note that was, wow, that was um, in the octave of the Feast of um, Our Lady of Lourdes. It was just six six days after the Feast of Our Lady of Lourdes and if I'm not mistaken, just one day before the Feast of St. Bernadette, the day that he was arrested by the Gestapo and taken away to Auschwitz. So, reading from his final writing from that day, the Immaculate Conception, Spouse of the Holy Spirit. And who is the Holy Spirit? He is the fruit of love of the Father and the Son, The fruit of a created love is a created conception. Hence, the fruit of this love, of the prototype of all created love, can also be nothing else but a conception. Hence, the Holy Spirit is an uncreated conception, an eternal one. He is the prototype of every sort of human conception in the universe. The Blessed Virgin Mary is joined in an ineffable manner to the Holy Spirit because she is his spouse. But this is true of her in an incomparably more perfect sense 
than anything this term can express among creatures. What kind of union is this? It is above all interior. It is the union of her very being with the being of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in her, loves in her, from the first instant of her existence, and he will do so always throughout eternity. In what does this life of the Holy Spirit in her consist? He himself is love in her, the love of the Father and the Son, the love by which God loves himself, the love of the entire Most Holy Trinity, a fruitful love, a conception. Among created beings, resemblance, among created resemblances, the union of love is the closest. Holy Scripture affirms that the two of them become one body, and Jesus insists they are no longer two but one flesh. In an incomparably more rigorous, more interior, more essential manner, the Holy Spirit lives in the soul of the Immaculate in her very being and makes her fruitful from the first instant of her existence and throughout her life, that is, forever. The, uh, this uncreated Immaculate Conception conceives divine life immaculately in the soul of Mary, his immaculate conception. In the Holy Spirit's union with her, not only does love join these two beings, but the first of the two, the Holy Spirit, is the entire love of the Holy Trinity, while the second, Mary, is the entire love of creation. And thus, in this union, heaven is joined with earth, all of heaven with all of earth, all uncreated love with all created love. It is the summit of love. Thus, at Lourdes, the Immaculate did not define herself as conceived without sin, but, as St. Bernadette related, she said in a voice in which a slight tremor could be detected, I am the Immaculate Conception. If among creatures a bride takes the name of her husband by the fact that she belongs to him, unites herself with him, makes herself like unto him, and together with him becomes the source of new life, how much more should the name of the Immaculate, excuse me, the name of the Holy Spirit, the Immaculate Conception, be the same of her in whom he loves with a love which is fruitful in the entire supernatural economy. Thus ends St. Maximilian Kolbe's final dictation, on the Immaculate Conception as Spouse of the Holy Spirit. And also, thus ends our time for today. You've been listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria with me, your host, Roy Shulman. And I've been spending today speaking mostly about the uh, apparition of the Blessed Virgin Mary of Lourdes, the feast day of Our Lady of Lourdes a few days ago, earlier this week, and the self identification of the Blessed Virgin Mary as I am the Immaculate Conception and what that means, what that means according to the theology of St. Maximilian Kolbe. So with that, as I said, we've come to the end of our time for today. It's time for me to say goodbye. I invite you to join us again next week, same time, same place, for Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. This is Roy Shoman saying bye for now.